You're listening to a sermon preached at Cheo English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity today to look at your Word together. Father, we pray that as we look at this portion of Romans, that you would help us to clearly understand how it is that we ought to respond to your great mercy to us in Christ. Father, we pray that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit now. Lord, make us receptive um, to your words. Help us to hear your voice. Father, we pray that you would help us today, um, not just to become smarter sinners, but to become transformed people, uh, living passionately on mission for you in response to your great mercy to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. South Africa, Cape Town. Cape Town is one of the cities that we've committed to for the purposes of God's global gospel mission. But more than that, Cape Town is actually a real beautiful place. It's a beautiful city and every single year, it's always ranked near the top of the most beautiful cities in the world lists. And in Cape Town, one of my favorite places is a mountain. Table Mountain, that's what it's called. If you Google image search Cape Town, the big table looking mountain in every photo is Table Mountain. Uh, One of the highlights of my life uh, was being able to climb Table Mountain with my wife Jane and some of our closest friends in 2018 and 2019. But Table Mountain, it's a very steep mountain and I'm sure many of you will agree with me when I say this, the climb isn't that easy. It's quite a difficult climb. The elevation of this mountain is more than a thousand meters vertically. I remember the first time when I climbed Table Mountain, um, five minutes into the climb, my back hurt, my knees were sore, I was sweating buckets, and every step required all the energy that I could muster up from within me. But then, but then we reached the top, And as I slowly lifted my gaze, I'll never forget what I saw. What a view. What a view. To look over the beautiful city of Cape Town, to look out at the the beautiful Atlantic Ocean, to look down upon where we had come from, to look back and see how far we've climbed. That was one of the highlights of that day for me, to look back and to see just how far we climbed. Friends, I'll tell you right now, that made the whole climb so worthwhile. Church, over the past six months, as a church, we've been studying the book of Romans. That's half a year of what has, at times, been really hard going. Uh, I'm assuming that at times, it was really difficult for you, the hearer. Uh, Trust me when I say this, at times, it was really difficult for me as well, preparing these sermons. Six months trying to understand what the Apostle Paul was saying in this letter to the Romans. Six months, step by step, climbing the theological heights of this mountainous book. Well, today, I'm very happy to say, we have finally reached chapter 12. Chapter 12 of Romans, and it's here at this point that Paul gets us to turn around and to have a look, to look down from the heights to see how much we've climbed, to look back and to see the view. And friends, what a view it is. 
in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has outlined God's plan for the world. I'm sure you remember, but it began with a proclamation that you and I are all guilty before God. You and I are all facing His wrath. We are all facing His righteous and holy anger. We read earlier on in Romans that we all stand condemned before God. But then, Paul's gone on to tell us all that God has done for us and that He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. How He sent His one and only Son, Jesus. How Jesus died on the cross for us. How Jesus died on account of our sin. Our sin condemned in the flesh of Jesus. We've seen how now we no longer stand condemned. We now stand as forgiven people. We stand before God as justified people, as a renewed people, whether Jew or Gentile. It was 11 chapters of hardcore climbing. And now, as we turn and as we look back to where we've come from, what of you? What of you? Because as we look back, we see the awesome panorama of God's sheer mercy. Mercy upon mercy to us. And as we look over, we see all His mercy and it leaves us amazed. But, friends, as we're going to see today, to look out upon God's mercy, it ought to do more to us than just leave us amazed. To look out on the great mercy of God, it causes us to respond. And we see that this great mercy of God that we've received, we ought to respond with everything we have. Now, friends, please keep your Bible open there before you at Romans chapter 12. Today, we'll be looking at the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12. And there in verse 1, Paul is going to get us to consider God's mercy. And he's going to tell us how we ought to respond to God's mercy. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Look at what he says. Therefore, that's what he says. Therefore, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy. See, after the first 11 chapters of Romans, in many ways, you and I have now, uh, we've now reached the summit, the peak. And now, Paul wants us to turn around and gaze down upon God's mercy to us, not only so that we stand in awe, but so that we can respond. And how does he want us to respond? He says, we are to respond to God's mercy to us by offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, for many of us who have... Uh, grown up in church or have been at church for a long time, perhaps it's because this verse has just become so familiar to us, but I reckon in a lot of ways we've somehow lost the strangeness of what's being said here. Look at what he's saying. Friends, remember that in the ancient world, a sacrifice was a dead thing. A sacrifice, to be sure, was something that once was living, but the thing that made it a sacrifice was the fact that it was killed, that it was put to death. A sacrifice was a dead thing. But here, Paul tells us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, that is, as ongoing sacrifices. 
What's he saying? For the recipients of God's mercy, aka Christians, the sacrifice that we are to offer to God is not like the one that was offered in the temple. Very different. The sacrifice we are called to offer to God, it doesn't begin with the shedding of blood and it's not followed by the burning of a body. No, no. The worship that we are to give to God in response to His great mercy to us is what Paul calls true and proper worship. True and proper worship. The sacrifice that we as Christians are to offer up to our God is what Paul calls true and proper worship. Some Bible translations will say spiritual worship. True and proper worship, meaning that it's not ritualistic, it's genuine. It's not ritualistic, it's not traditional, it's real, it's proper, it's appropriate, it's the right way to worship. But it is an offering of the body. It means that the various parts of our bodies are to be dedicated to God. Our hands, our tongues, our eyes, our feet, our minds, all of us is now to be offered up to God, dedicated to Him for use for His purposes. You see, that is at the very heart of Christian worship. What comes to mind when you hear the word worship? This is what needs to come to our minds, dedicating our whole bodies, our whole lives to God for His purposes. That is what Paul calls true and proper worship. Every part of our bodies, our whole selves, everything we have, everything we are, dedicated to God. That is true and proper worship. So you see, the true and proper worship of a Christian, it's not restricted to some sacred site. It's not restricted to a sacred time or some sacred rituals or ceremonies. No, no. Christian worship is all about living for God. When the Christian lives for God, that is worship, true and proper. Every part of our lives, every part of our bodies, dedicated to God, every day, everywhere, in every circumstance, that is worship. So when Christians gather together every Sunday for church, uh, which is something that we miss very much, when Christians gather together every Sunday for church, when we come together to praise God in song, when we come together to help each other grow as Christians, to encourage one another with the gospel, that is most definitely worship. Yes, for sure. But we need to remember that our Sunday gathering is only one aspect of the continual worship that we Christians are to offer up to God. In other words, Christians don't worship God for just one or two hours a week on a Sunday. Did you catch that? Christians are not called by God to offer up worship to Him for one hour on a Sunday afternoon at church. Christians are to worship God every day, everywhere, in every life situation, and we do that as we live for Him. Whether you're here at church, whether you're watching from home, whether you're commuting to work, or whether you're dropping your kids off at school, whether you're in an online uni lecture, or you're going to Woolies, if you're at home brushing your teeth, you are called upon in all those situations to be worshipping God. All of life is worship for the Christian. And 
That's in no way to uh, denigrate. That's in no way to belittle the corporate worship that we do together at church on Sundays. Of course not. But what I'm trying to say is, I think we as a church need to raise our understanding of what true and proper worship is. Worship is in every sphere of our lives. In other words, Christian, you who've received mercy from God, don't you ever think that singing a song at church is worship, but going to work isn't? Don't you ever assume that sitting in church is worship, but that somehow doing a uni assignment is less than worship? Because that's incorrect thinking. You know why? Because as Christians, there's no part of us that hasn't been pervaded by the mercy of God. Amen? There's no part of our lives that's been unaffected by the mercy of God. That's why our whole lives, our whole bodies are to be offered up to God in worship. And so now, we Christians are called to offer all of ourselves to Him continually in grateful response, in obedience. That is worship. But how? How do we do that? How do we do that? How do we go about offering ourselves as living sacrifices? Well, friends, we can only present our bodies to God as genuinely holy and acceptable sacrifices if we've first been transformed transformed. We need to stop conforming to the pattern of this world, but instead we need to be transformed. Look with me at verse 2. First half of verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. We need to be transformed. I love the way uh, the J.B. Phillips Bible translates this first. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. See, friends, because whether we realize it or not, the culture in which we live has this certain molding influence on us, right? Can you notice that? This, this world that we live in, this culture that we live in, there's this great power about it. It's very potent. The culture that we live in, it's got its own views, it's got its own assumptions, and its own opinions. The world that you and I live in it's got its own values, its own objectives, and its own priorities. The things that it approves of and the things that it disapproves of. And if we're honest, we have to admit, it's actually a very powerful force. A, a, a force that constantly pushes in upon us at every stage of life, and it's constantly opposing the biblical worldview. It's constantly opposing the biblical worldview. But the ways of the world and the ways of God, if we're honest, we'll realize that they actually couldn't be any more different. The ways of the world and the ways of God are very different. Think about it. The world says, do what makes you happy. God says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The world says, listen to your heart. God says, the heart is deceitful above all things. The world says, Live your best life now. God says the best life is the next one, the life to come, the eternal life. The world says repay evil with evil. God says repay evil with good. The world says that sex is enjoyment without commitment. God says that sex is enjoyment 
with commitment. The world says that marriage can be between a man and a man. God says that marriage is only for a man and a woman. The world says that you can choose your gender. God says you can't choose your gender. You are male or female. Your sex, your gender is assigned by God. Friends, you see, at point after point after point, the pattern of this world is at odds with the will of God. And now you must choose. You either conform to the pattern of this world or you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. But know this, know this. If you intend to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God in response to the great mercy that he's shown you, then you're going to have to transform. You either conform or you transform. But if you want to worship God properly because of what he's done for you in Christ, then the only correct answer is you need to be transformed. That's the right way. So, logical next question. How does this transformation take place? What do I got to do? Look with me again at verse 2. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Friends, our transformation will take place when we renew our minds. What does that mean, to renew our minds? Well, when you think about it, the mind is kind of like the control tower for the rest of your body, isn't it? It's kind of the engine room, if you like, of your life, the mind. The mind affects the way that we behave. It determines the way that we act day to day. So when, for example, my mind believes that true contentment is found in having a huge personal net worth of money, then that will be seen in my behavior, right? I might lie, steal, cheat, or I might work excessively long hours, sacrificing my body, sacrificing my family, sacrificing my personal spiritual health so that I can achieve my goal, which is a huge personal net worth of money. Or, for example, if my mind believes that heaven is my true home, well, then that's going to be seen in my behavior, right? In the way that I live. I won't be running after money. That's going to be one day consumed anyway. No, I'll be running after kingdom matters, things that will be important from the perspective of God's kingdom. Church, do you get this? This is really important. Your thinking affects your behavior. Your thinking affects your behavior. The things that you prioritize in here is how you're going to live out your life day to day and what you're going to prioritize with your life. So only by transforming your mind, by transforming the way you think, can you even begin to live God's way? Can you even begin to actually be offering true and proper worship to the God of your salvation? Church, it's as we dwell upon God's word that we can develop Christian minds. It's as we build our lives on the Bible that we can develop renewed minds, that we will develop godly priorities. My Christian friends, it's as we dwell on the Word of God that we will be transformed from those who think as the world thinks and transformed into those who think as God thinks. And it's then that we'll be able to live according to the will of God. But friends, I need to say, don't misunderstand at this point. It's not that as Christians, we're now somehow to tune out or to somehow tap out of everything that the world has to say to us. No, no. 
It's not as though we're not allowed to go on the internet or watch a movie. Um, it's not as though we're not allowed to, to hang out with our non-Christian friends for fear of imbibing their way of thinking. No, no. No, I think the principle at work here is that by dwelling often on God's Word, by you and me as Christians, often and regularly reading the Bible, that our minds will be so thoroughly renewed that as we live in this world, that we will know instinctively what we're meant to do in any given situation in order to please God. That's worship. That's what a renewed mind looks like. It's clear that that's what Paul's saying, because we see it in the second sentence there in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2, the second sentence of verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's as we dwell on God's Word that we will develop Christian minds, that we will have renewed thinking, and then we'll be able to use that thinking as we live out our lives in this world for God's purposes and for God's glory. So church, let me ask you, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Are you renewing your mind? Are you thoughtfully and prayerfully and regularly reading God's Word? Are you dwelling on God's Word? Are you regularly joining online church in order to hear God's Word? Are you in a life group? Are you daily receiving the truth of God's Word so that your mind will be renewed? Friends, I don't know um, if you've heard this old saying, but I think it's so true. The saying goes like this, garbage in, garbage out. And if you're only feeding your mind with the garbage of this world, its philosophies, its priorities, then you will soak it up. Knowingly or not, you will lap it up. And whether you're aware of it or not, you will live it out. Church, we need to dwell on God's Word often. Not so that we can escape from this world, but so that we can actually develop a biblical worldview, so that our minds can be renewed, so that we can develop Christian minds, so that we will become what we think, and so that we'll be able to respond appropriately to the mercy that God has shown to us in Christ. But just so that we haven't missed the point, Paul now goes on to give us an example, an example of how someone with a renewed mind will think, or in this case, won't think. The person with a renewed mind won't think too highly of themselves. Look with me at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to each one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. See, a person with a renewed mind they're going to be somebody who thinks of themselves with sober judgment. In other words, they're not going to have a too high an opinion of themselves and they're not going to have a too low opinion of themselves either. They're going to consider themselves with sober judgment. And that'll happen when you come to develop a Christian mind. There are two factors at work here. Firstly, you'll need to think about yourself soberly when you come to realize and understand that under the gospel, all Christians are equal. Under the gospel, all Christians are equal and that all of us are actually beggars on God's mercy. 
Paul puts it this way in verse 3. Look with me at the second half of verse 3. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. In accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. The idea here isn't that we've been given different amounts of faith so that some of us can think more soberly about ourselves than others. No, no. It's actually the exact opposite idea here. The idea here is that you and I have been given the same faith, the same measure of faith, the same measuring stick, if you like, which is our faith. Our faith, you and I, we've been saved by our faith, is the same gold standard, if you like. In other words, we have the same belief. That's true, isn't it? For instance, it's true, isn't it? That if you believe yourself to be a sinner saved by grace, right? Me too. That makes us all the same. You see, it's our faith that is the great leveler. You can't have grasped the Christian faith. You can't have dwelt on the Word of God and still think of yourself as being better than anybody else. That's inconsistent with the measure of faith we've been given. That's the first factor. The second factor that will cause you to consider yourself a sober judgment is the fact that you as an individual Christian are just one part of a whole. That's the second factor that we need to consider. The fact that you and I, as individual Christians, are actually just one part of a whole. Just like the human body has different parts that are all united, so too are we, individual Christians, all part of one body, the body of Christ, the church. Look with me at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So yes, the different parts of the human body are going to have different functions. So for example, the foot's function is going to be very different to the hand's function. But that doesn't mean that the foot is in some way better or worse than the hand, right? No way. They're just different. They have different functions. And Paul's point here is that we, as a church, are the same like a human body. As individual Christians, we might have different functions. We definitely do have different talents and different skills and different giftings. But that doesn't make anybody better than anybody else. That's his point. It just means that the church of God can operate the way that it was always designed to, by God. That way the church will function the way that God intends it to. So church, can you see? Can you see the way Paul is uh, using this example here to illustrate how renewed thinking will affect our behavior? When you've renewed your mind, you will no longer think of yourself more highly than you ought. And that's radically different um, to the thinking in the world, I think, right? That's really different, actually, to worldly thinking. The world that we live in looks upon talent as something maybe to be exploited, as something that actually sets people apart from one another, very different to what the Bible says here, or even worse, the world looks upon people with talent and actually sets one person above one another. You know, our world, which says, if you've got a talent, then you're the one to be admired, to be praised, to be even worshipped. Think elite athletes, think great singers. But us Christians, 
are called to think differently. Christians, we're called to renew our minds, remembering that all of us are sinners saved by grace, remembering that all of us are just individuals that together form a body, the body of Christ. It's radically different thinking. It's countercultural thinking. It's not conforming. This is transforming. But it's essential thinking if you and I are going to respond to God's mercy appropriately. So, if you've got a gift, good. Make sure you use it, but use it as it was intended. Not to glorify yourself, but to use it to build up Christ's body, the church. That's Paul's point as he continues through to verse 6 to 8. That's Paul's point. And you want to notice that Paul gets really quite specific and he lists seven gifts. Seven gifts that come to us through the grace of God. Look with me uh, in your Bibles at verse 6 to 8. Verse 6 to 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Friends, there you go. Seven gifts. Seven gifts. Uh, they're not all the gifts available. Uh, they're just a few of them. They're just seven of them. Let me ask you this though. Did you notice how Paul went through those gifts? How he communicated those gifts to us? He's almost blasé about the people with the gifts, right? Did you notice that? At no point does Paul ever set one person above another because of the kind of gift that they've got. Can you notice that? Paul's kind of just like, Okay, if you've got a gift, good. Now get on with it. Use it. You know, if it's encouraging, encourage. If it's teaching, teach. The point is, whatever gift you've been given, it's been given to you not because you deserve it and not because you're awesome, but it's been given to you because of the grace of God. Verse 6, it's the grace of God that you have this gift. So get on with it. Use it. Don't hide it. Use it. Use the gift that God has given you and use it as it was intended, not to glorify yourself, but to build up the body and therefore glorify God. Use your gifts the right way. To build up the body of Christ and therefore to glorify God. Church, I wonder if that's the way that you have come to think about yourself as a member of our church. Friend, I wonder if that's how you think about yourself and your gifts. Because sadly, I suspect, and I say this as your pastor, I suspect that quite a number of you don't have renewed thinking when it comes to this. Unfortunately, I think way too many Christians, perhaps, see themselves as people with gifts that aren't to be used. Perhaps because their particular gift isn't spectacular enough, maybe they think. And so, I think, a lot of Christians view church as a bit of a spectator sport. Where church becomes all about getting, all about receiving. And coming to church becomes all about sitting in a pew for an hour or two. But friends, that's the wrong thinking. 
God has put you here at chemistry with gifts. God has put you here at chemistry with gifts. God has given you gifts that are to be used, not hidden, used for the good of the church, for the benefit of other members and for the glory of God. Friend, chemistry member, don't you ever think that your gift is too basic? God wouldn't have given them to you if he didn't want you to be using them. One of the indicators of a healthy church is that all the members are using their gifts. That is a flourishing church. It's an abounding church. It's a vibrant church. I can always tell uh, an unhealthy church when in a church family, only a few people are using their gifts and the rest of them, just spectators on the outside looking in. Take, take, take. They receive, receive, receive. And they say stupid things like, I wonder what I'm going to get out of church. Or I wonder what I'm going to get edified by, by life group. I wonder how this life group is going to serve me. My Christian friends, use your gifts to serve the people of God and to glorify God. And in addition, I think this also needs to be said, when it comes to using your gifts to build up the body of Christ, age doesn't matter. It really doesn't. I've been greatly blessed by the encouragement of teenagers as well as 80-year-olds. Friends, use your gifts. Age doesn't matter. Moreover, stage of life doesn't matter. Whether you're a uni student or a married person, whether you're a working professional or maybe you're a parent with young kids, you are gifted in some unique ways which will help and serve the rest of us. When it comes to using your gifts to serving God's household, age doesn't matter, stage of life doesn't matter, and also how long you've been a Christian for doesn't matter. It's got to be said. Whether you're new to the Christian faith or whether you've been following Jesus all your life, it doesn't matter. You can give of yourself in some way. You can contribute in some way. So, chemistry member, let me ask you right now, what are some of your gifts? What are some of the ways God has graciously gifted you? Encouraging? Cleaning? Counting money? Arranging flowers? Gardening? Maybe you're gifted in other things. Are you good at teaching? Serving? Making rosters? Music? Some of you can sing. Some of you can play instruments. Some of, you have even written, some of you have even written your own songs. You're gifted. What are your gifts? Are you a good dancer? I'm not. But some of you are. I know some of you are amazing dancers. How can you use that gift to build up the body of Christ? Because that's what God wants you to do. That is true and proper worship. What are you gifted with? Can you drive a car? Are you artistic? Are you good with animals? Can you cook? Are you good with technology? Are you good with social media? Are you good at design? Are you good with organizing and implementing systems? Are you good with administration? Are you good at communicating with children in creative ways? Are you good with words? Are you good with people? Are you a high income earner? Friends, the list is endless, isn't it? It goes on and on and on. Church, 
Don't be a spectator anymore. Be an active participant of this gospel family. Use your gifts because that's the sort of behavior that will flow from a renewed mind. But as you do this, you'll be offering your body to God as a living sacrifice. That's what you need to know. And you'll be responding appropriately to the mercy that God has shown you. So, what are we going to do with this? What do we do with all that we've seen in this passage? Well, church, I think we're left with two questions. Two questions. The first question that I think we're left with is this. Have you understood the mercy of God? Have you understood the mercy of God? Have you understood the fact that once upon a time you were dead in your sins and you were destined for hell? Have you understood the fact that you deserved hell? But that God, out of His sheer and amazing grace, has changed that and now heaven is yours? Have you understood the mercy of God? Because if not, then you need to know that something has gone terribly wrong. See, you might be a really good person. You might be someone who does really nice things, and that's good. But this passage teaches us that the nice things that you do, that's not really Christian worship that you're doing. That's not God-honoring, God-pleasing worship that that you're doing. The fact is, if the good works that you're doing are not flowing as a result of the mercy that God has shown you, the fact is, you're just a moralistic person. The fact is, you're closer to being in an ordinary chess club or a bird-watching group than you are a Christian. It's not Christian worship that you're doing, and that's a big problem. And if this is you, then what you need to do is, you need to go back. You need to go back into the first 11 chapters of Romans, and you need to look again there at God's plan. You need to look there again at the crazy mercy that God has shown you. Because it could be that you've got a bit more climbing to do. But until you understand for yourself the mercy of God in your life, then you will not and you cannot offer God true and proper worship. But I suspect that that's not the big problem for most of us here at Chemistry. I'm a member of this family just like you, and week after week after week, I hear the gospel preached. I hear the prayers that we pray. I know that the mercy of God is talked about in our gatherings, both publicly and privately. And I know that most of us here at Chemistry have come to understand the mercy of God in our lives, and we've accepted that for ourselves. But there may be, for us, another problem. Which brings us to our second question, which is this. Are you responding to the mercy of God? Are you responding to the mercy of God? See, once you're clear on the mercy of God, you cannot stop there. You've got to respond. You've got to respond with everything you have. My genuine fear for us middle class, upper middle class Sydney Christians is that generally speaking, we are happy to stop there. We're happy to nod our head and say God is great. Praise God for His mercy. And and that's the limitation of our worship. That's really where it stops. My fear is that too many of us at chemistry are happy to settle 
for an hour or two of worship each Sunday. My fear is that we aren't offering God all of our lives. My fear is that we're giving to Him a mere portion, a small portion. For some of us, dare I say, scraps. Thinking that we've been to church this week and therefore that our business with God is done for the week. The great J.C. Ryle, he wrote this, The man who has nothing more than a kind of Sunday religion, whose Christianity is like his Sunday clothes, put on once a week and then laid aside, such a man cannot, of course, be expected to care about growth in grace. My fear is that too many of you are Sunday Christians. My concern is that we're not renewing our minds. My fear is that we're spending hours and hours a week watching Netflix, playing video games, doing the doom scroll on social media. And how long are we spending in God's Word? I fear minutes. Church, my great fear is that we are conforming to the world rather than being transformed. My fear, being totally honest, my, my real fear is that we will come out of this lockdown looking actually no different from our non-Christian friends, looking no different from our non-Christian co-workers and our neighbours. My genuine concern is that we will have the same attitude towards money and towards our need to constantly consume and our emphasis on career and comfort. My fear is that just like the world, that we will bow down to the idols of security and stability. My fear is that we will care more about social distancing than about perishing souls. I fear that we choose not to use our gifts, choosing rather to be spectators than participators. Are you an active and growing member of a life group? If not, is that because you're a spectator? I don't know. That's between you and God. Have you encouraged at least one person in your church family this past week? If not, is that because you're a spectator? I don't know. That's between you and God. When we meet this coming Wednesday night to pray together, will you be absent? And is that because you're a spectator? Or because perhaps you've got something more important to do? I don't know. That's between you and God. But friends, until we have seen and we have understood the mercy of God, until we have responded to that mercy with our whole selves, then we need to know that what we're doing is less than Christian worship. And so here's the challenge. Let me finish. Here's the challenge. Here is what God is saying to each and every one of us right now today. Here it is. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform 
to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great kindness that you've shown to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, to think that Jesus has died for us wretched sinners. Lord, to think that we might be forgiven of our sins and given righteousness and eternal life. Our Father, help us to do more than just stand in awe at your mercy. Help us, Lord, to respond constantly with everything we have to bring you praise. Our Father, we pray that you will forgive us when we fail to respond to your great mercy as we ought, when we fail to be transformed, choosing rather to actually conform to the world. Our Father, we pray that you would grow in our hearts a new commitment, a new resolution, a new conviction to renew our minds through your word, the Bible. And Lord, as we do, may we see ourselves and each other as you see us, using our gifts for the good of your church, so that we might bring you worship that you so richly deserve. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.